Uh, that's great. Uh, it was great to worship the Lord together, wasn't it? And um, a g- great encouragement as well to pray for our nation. Um, let's um, just ask for the Lord to speak to us as we look at his word together tonight. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, um, Paul's v- visit to Corinth and how the church began there. Um, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and reliable, that uh, there are no mistakes. And as we read this passage tonight, may it be more than just a travel journal Um, or a description um, from history, Uh, but may it be your living words speaking to our hearts, showing us about the kind of people that you would call us to be as we follow Jesus. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to have open ears and willing hearts uh, to your word tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, before we read from uh, Acts chapter 18, which we're, we're looking at, Um, I find it very helpful to imagine what it would have been like to be there. And uh, one of the things that I was able to do as part of my sabbatical, uh, which I've um, uh, come to the end of, um, my last week lies ahead of me, three months um, to have chance for refreshment and reflection, uh, was to visit uh, the ancient city of Corinth. Maybe some of you have uh, had the opportunity to do that. It's just a pile of ruins now. I've visited a few places in Greece like that. And one of the things I noticed about these ruins of uh, the ancient Greek temples to Zeus and all that lot is that those Greek gods didn't look after their buildings very well, did they? Uh, no, that's a, <laughs> that's a little unfair, isn't it? Um, but they are mostly piles of ruins now, although um, the city of Corinth is a very interesting place. Uh, it survives off the tourist trade of people going to visit the ruins, uh, because that's all that there is to look at there now. Um, but I'd like us to imagine, sort of to, in our minds, to go um, back in time, as it were, to this place that was a thriving uh, city of commerce, a centre for politics, um, between these two pieces of sea... There was a tiny stretch of land uh, in Greece, no more than five miles long at the most, and this flat uh, isthmus of land is where Corinth was built. And uh, in order to transport goods from one sea to the other, uh, they didn't like to go around the bottom of Greece. Apparently it could be as dangerous as trying to sail around the Cape of Good Hope or whatever, Um, what they would do is they would unload the ships and then carry the goods across to the other side a couple of miles uh, and they would take the ship as well. And they would carry the ship, put it back in, reload it and off they'd go. Much better, they thought, than trying to go. Anyway, it made Corinth a place that was a real centre for commerce and um, uh, it was the marketplace of Greece. But it was also more than a great commercial centre. It was the home of the Isthmian Games. uh, And um, Corinth was also a city of great reputation for debauchery and immoral living. In fact, uh, the word Corinthian came into the English language to describe people who are noisy and boisterous. And in Greece, if a Corinthian was ever shown on stage you know, portrayed in a play or something like that, they would always be shown as someone who was drunk. So that was the Corinthian for you. Not only that, but up on the hillside, there's a great hillside, uh, Acro-Corinth it's uh, called now, and there's this enormous fortress with layers of fortress walls, and on the top of that mountain was a temple to Aphrodite. A thousand prostitutes 
who uh, uh, were part of that religious uh, process would come down to the city every day, every evening. And uh, uh, people would waste their money uh, on this religious guise for lust and so on. In fact, it was said, not every man can afford a journey to Corinth because it was considered that you would spend all your money there. And this is the place where Paul went. To a place where there were thousands of prostitutes, great drunkenness and immorality. In fact, when he writes a little bit later to the Corinthians, he says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, he says. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or homosexuals, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunks, or revilers, or robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, the best bit of all, he says, and such were some of you. You've been changed, you're different now to that city uh, around you. And um, it had, as I've mentioned, these two harbours, um, it was uh, an immoral place, it had already been rebuilt once by um, Julius Caesar, having been destroyed previously by the Romans. And uh, it was from here that Paul wrote of what he found. He knew uh, people from all over the empire were there. It was a strategic place to spread the gospel from, but a strategic place for people who needed the Lord. And when I think of Corinth, I think Britain is becoming more like Corinth in so many ways with a number of idols uh, with the uh, uh, approach to morality, um, uh, with uh, the problems of binge drinking. Um, it was no different to 2,000 years ago. So let's see, how did Paul plant a church in that place? And maybe we can learn from it. Acts chapter 18. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged as persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. 
But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria. Well, may God bless his word to us. So here's how the church started in Corinth. Paul arrives, uh, he finds some people with a common uh, group of um, working, working with leather tent makers, and uh, uh, they begin uh, their fellow Jews, they obviously come to know the Lord uh, through Paul's witness. And Paul has started witnessing in the synagogue. He's bivocational is the modern trendy term, uh, where he has his own job uh, that helps support the ministry of the work he's doing. But when two further friends arrive with a, a gift, it releases Paul to devote his time to gospel work entirely, um, which of course, in Baptist churches has also been uh, the ideal. It's more effective if pastors can be free to get on with the work of the gospel without having uh, to spend time earning a living as well. That's why we pay our pastors stipends. So Paul has used this same model, and uh, uh, eventually uh, in the synagogue, uh, they get fed up of hearing about him, although many of them believe, and uh, he goes to the Gentiles, finds other ways with this house-based, this house-based church to share the gospel and it causes ripples that eventually mean that the Jews want to bring Paul before the governor to be uh, treated as a criminal and the governor won't hear anything about it. And the, Paul stays there, he consolidates the work. He, he needs to in Corinth because when we read those letters later we think, what on earth would the church have been like if Paul hadn't stayed for 18 months? Um, in Thessalonica, just a little way away, he was only able to stay for a few weeks. But in Corinth, a lot of work had to be done and the gospel was established. And in this, I, I see something of God's providence. I mean, one of the first things is that Paul rarely seems to work alone, does he? Notice he makes friends with Priscilla and Aquila. He's got the friends who are arriving um, from uh, other places, bringing a gift with them and... Um, uh, it's, it's exciting, you know, Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, this group uh, of uh, enthusiastic people for Jesus have gathered together and they work together for the gospel. They earn a living, they make Jesus known, they do what they can to talk about the Lord. Uh, and I'm encouraged by this, that church work is not a solitary enterprise, Sharing the gospel is something which should be done together. This morning I heard on the radio someone describing the, the flocks of geese that have started uh, uh, flying, um, uh, migrating, and it was a beautiful description listening to this. You know, they're sort of wavy V formations. Uh, even as I was leaving Monmouth today, I could see that some migrating geese had found a dry patch in the middle of the River Wye and were all sat there uh, having a little rest before they continue on their way. I'm sure you're familiar with geese and the noise they make as they go. And um, uh, those uh, who know a bit about them, they can fly at 40 or 50 miles an hour. That's quite something. Uh, if you ask children, what would your favourite superhero uh, power be? Most of them say they'd like to be able to fly. Uh, I expect probably faster than 40 or 50 miles an hour. And um, we know that that V formation helps them to travel 
better together. 70% further they can go in a group than on their own. But one of the most noticeable things is this noise they're making. And they're honking, making that sort of noise, uh, encouraging each other, making each other aware of where they are. They're not critics. As they're honking through the sky, they're not saying, oh, look at that dreadful way you're flying. Or you're in the wrong place. Getting, you know, they're, they're encouraging each other, aren't they, uh, with that purpose. And I wonder uh, whether Paul uh, and his friends, they had plenty of helpful honks, didn't they? as they encouraged each other in the Lord Jesus. They enjoyed being together and they were enjoying Jesus as they shared him in this very immoral uh, place, this rich place. People were preoccupied, searching for pleasure, searching for riches, and uh, they, uh, in the emptiness of their lives, were filling it with things like drink and so on. And here is Jesus offering them hope and a new life. But as that happens, there's persecution that arises and, um, uh, you know, maybe the encouragement for us is let's try to encourage one another uh, because the world out there is not very enthusiastic about followers of Jesus uh, and less so today. We need to encourage one another, don't we? And um, as Paul has shared the gospel with the Jews, there's this man, Crispus, one of the first Christians in Corinth. Uh, he becomes a believer, it says so there, doesn't it? Um, that many uh, believed, many Corinthians heard and believed and were baptised. And uh, this chap Crispus and his household had become Christians, the leader of the synagogue. And um, God, as the persecution starts to rise, as the church grows, that's often the case as well, gives these words of encouragement to Paul. And that's what I think we need to focus in on tonight. In verse 9 it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And God gave Paul three promises and three commands, as it were. And uh, if we want to be a church that God can work in and work through, I believe these are words for us as well. Do not be afraid, literally stop being afraid. So Paul was feeling a little fearful and anxious about the trouble that was emerging in the Jewish community in that, that city. Um, the Lord says, I'm with you. So what's the antidote to fear? It's knowing the Lord is with us. And then he says, keep on speaking. No one's going to harm you. That's the next one. There's the command. Keep speaking. Why? No one's going to harm you. The Lord is going to make sure that the work continues. And then do not be or become silent because I have many people. And there are three things here. The first is the presence of God. The second, the protection. And the third is the purpose of God. There we are. Easy things to remember. The presence, protection and purpose of God. That was what was there in the planting of this church in Corinth. Uh, could it be here? In Coipin Mine, could it be here that the Lord has his presence that he has his protection over you, that he's got a purpose for your church? Well, let's look at those a little closer, shall we? And the first thing is to notice that Paul was afraid. He could see the trouble brewing. Now, Paul has already been stoned nearly to death. He's been in prison. He's faced all sorts of troubles, but he could still be frightened. And isn't that great and encouraging that we can be fearful? What will happen what will the future hold for these people? Paul was obviously anxious and fearful in spite of his great faith and trust in the Lord. 
And the Lord's answer to Paul's fears was to say, I am with you. It was a promise of his presence. So I am with you, it says there in verse 10. There'd been a culture shock in Athens. We won't go into the story now, but when he went to Athens, he was horrified to see all the gods and temples and shrines that were there. It was a big shock because a, a Jewish man, he'd never seen anything like it. Athens was the centre of idolatry. In Corinth, he has a different shock. It's a moral shock at the, uh, the, the sweat and perfume and grit smothered his righteous soul and he became depressed writes one writer and we know that because when Paul wrote to the Corinthians he said I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling he must have wondered how can I share the gospel with these people when even the Jewish community are so troublesome and difficult and God promises I am with you his presence is to be with Paul in his work for the gospel it's not a blanket promise, and sometimes we use the promise of God's presence. Have you ever prayed that or heard people say that? Oh, God is with you. God isn't with you in everything. He doesn't approve of everything we do. But God's promise was to be with Paul in his fears about the sharing of the gospel and living for Jesus in that place. And his promise is for you. If you're going to stand up for Jesus and live for him and be a witness and a shining light together, God's promise is, I am with you. Jesus said that as he went back to the throne in heaven. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. But it was a promise made when he'd commanded them to share the gospel, make disciples of all nations. Jesus' promise means that he, he cares about us, that Jesus is going to be with his people as they, they face the world. That he's sympathetic. That he's going to work with us. And one of the great things about being a Christian that cults and other religions don't have is that Jesus actually lives in our hearts. He lives within us. So when we're living for him, when we're facing a crisis or a problem or working out what the future might hold for us, Jesus is doing that with us. Isn't that great? He's doing that through us and in our hearts. So um, uh, it's a really great uh, thing. If you're fearful or anxious, God says to you, I am with you. He comes to, to calm us, to give us the peace to face what the future holds. You know, the preacher um, Campbell Morgan in uh, earlier times, he said uh, that as a young preacher, he used to visit two elderly women every week and read the Bible to them. And one evening, when he finished reading the end of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus says, and, and look, I'm with you to the end of the age, he closed his Bible and he said, isn't that a wonderful promise? And the ladies turned to him and said, young man, it's not a promise. It's a certainty. I go, yeah, you see, there was a certainty. And God was giving this reassurance to Paul to say that he got plans for the city. But Paul, you don't be anxious. I know that you may be facing real threats here of persecution, but I am with you. I'm going to be with you in it. So that was the first thing. And that moves us to the second. It was a promise of protection. Now, this is perhaps more interesting where the Lord says, in a sense, uh, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I'm with you. No one is going to attack and harm you. Now, God wasn't promising that Paul would face no problems. Some people read the Bible like that, don't they? And they, 
They come to Jesus and they think all their their problems are going to be over. Uh, They're going to have plenty of money. They're going to be healthy. They'll never face any difficulties uh, in life. Uh, Their temptations are no longer going to be tempting. And they're not going to want to do bad things anymore. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Um, That doesn't seem to be Paul's experience. So that's not what the Lord is promising. In fact, Jesus didn't promise that the opponents wouldn't be there. He didn't promise there wouldn't be trouble and persecution. He's only promised that they won't be successful. They're not going to stop what God wants to happen. No one will attack you to hurt you. Not saying no one will attack you, but they won't attack you to hurt you, to hurt the work that you're doing. And the solution is to speak, to carry on speaking, not to be silent. See, that's that's where the protection part comes in, is God is still uh, watching over his people because he's interested in the honour of his name. And uh, if Paul ends up in prison in Corinth, which in fact he doesn't, but if he does, it will be to further the gospel. And if Paul finds that there's an open door because the governor in the town seems favourable towards him and isn't going to take the arguments of the Jews on board, he's not even going to hear a case, and that means that Paul is free to go and preach wherever he wants. If that happens, then that's great as well. But that was God's promise of protection, and the outcome of that is to carry on speaking. Paul's uh, not to keep silent. And he carries on talking about Jesus. And it carries on annoying the Jews, but he carries on talking about Jesus. You know, you and I can be, um, sometimes, when we want to make a good name for ourselves and uh, a good reputation in the community, it's easy to talk about all the nice things that we can do for the people who live around here. We can have great community. We can have friendship meetings. And all those are great. Uh, We we can provide food for the hungry and care for the needy. And all of that's really good. But, you know, we mustn't stop talking about Jesus. And uh, uh, Paul is told here, don't keep silent. It's Jesus that they need to know about. It's because of Jesus that we have community. It's because of Jesus that we have true fellowship. It's because of Jesus that we can care for the needy and feed the hungry and so on. So don't keep quiet about it. Uh, I know it's easy when uh, you talk to people on a Monday and you say, say, what did you do this weekend? And you might talk about the barbecue we had and the nice weather and cut, mowing the grass. But, you know, talk about Jesus, not just church, but Jesus and uh, uh, what he's done for you. Don't keep silent. Don't be afraid. Don't keep silent. And um, uh, there's a great story of George Whitfield, um, one of the Methodist preachers in the Methodist revival. And George Whitfield, uh, he was characterised by preaching from John chapter 3, you must be born again. And people were getting fed up of hearing his message because he seemed to say the same thing, you must be born again. And a a lady once came up to him and she said, why do you keep preaching, you must be born again? And he looked at her and he said, because you must be born again. (laughs) See, that's the only way we could be saved. It's the only way our mended friendship with God Uh, our broken friendship with God could be mended we need to be born again we need Jesus and uh, Jesus there's no one like him he is unique he is uniquely God he is uniquely man 
He is uniquely the one who gave his life on a cross to save us. And if you're wondering, should I give my life to Jesus? Shall I follow him? Look, I'm not going to stay silent tonight. And there are people sitting around you who won't. Because uh, there is nothing that this world can offer which is better than eternal life in him. You must be born again. So come to Jesus. Don't try and keep the rules. Don't try and be good. That's not what it's about. It's about starting a friendship with God. Because Jesus has paid for it on the cross. All you do is come and say, Jesus, I need you. Be my Lord. Be my saviour. Take charge of my life. I'll follow you. And this is what Paul was preaching to the Corinthians. And they were being changed. Such were some of you. They were coming from an immoral background and turning from their sins. They were leaving their pursuit of wealth and they were pursuing the things of God. They were using their wealth for godly purposes. They were being transformed. What a wonderful thing the gospel is. And because of God's promise, Paul kept going. I love the story about William Carey, the first modern missionary, really. really. He founded the Baptist Missionary Society. He spent decades translating the scriptures and working for uh, seeing only one convert in India after 20 years of work. Amazing, really. And he was asked what some of his good qualities were once. And he, uh, he, he said this. He said, I can plod without giving up in any given direction. Isn't that great? Yeah. And Paul plods on. He's not silent. He just plods. He keeps going. Uh, I have to confess, I'm a bit of a plodder myself. I, my style of leadership in, uh, in our church in Monmouth has never been um, turn things upside down. I'm a plodder. Uh, but it seems that the Lord uses plodders like William Carey, uh, like Paul, who just carry on, don't keep silent, keep on lifting up the name of the Lord. And um, uh, we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't frown on that. The encouragement, if God has promised that he's going to watch over our work for him, then we should carry on with it. And uh, there's some encouragement for us. When you know God's in it, then you can stick with it, can't you? And then the third thing that God said to them, having uh, said to Paul, having made this uh, promise of, of his presence, his promise of protection for the work, the last thing is that God tells him he has a purpose. And uh, these are uh, beautiful words at the end of the vision. Verse 10. I have many people in this city. This was the assurance God gives to Paul. He must have wondered, how can a church survive in a city like this? Will they be taken over by false teachers? Will the Jews have them put out or put in jail? Will they go back to their old immoral ways? And God says... I have many people in this city. Does that mean that there were churches there that hadn't been found yet? Uh, no, it didn't. God is talking about people who aren't yet Christians. And there's nothing more comforting than when you're trying to faithfully be a witness for Jesus and not much is happening, and it seems that you're doing all this sowing, and there's very little growing. Maybe you've had that experience in your church life. And in Britain today, it can look like that, can't it? Because uh, every time you see the media talk about the church, they tell us it's all going downhill. It's all declining, they'll say. In the last five years, 
the church in Wales has lost attenders by 25%. That's an enormous decline. But my friends, it's not the only story where the word of God is believed and preached. Even here in Wales, the gospel is having an impact. Churches are growing. Churches are being planted. And it's happening even here in Wales, let alone around the world today. It's not the only story. That's because God has people who he wants to belong to his family. And here is the greatest encouragement I find when I, when I read this, when I'm wondering about the work, I, I sense the Lord saying, I have people in Monmouth who belong to my church. They don't yet, because we've not found them. But they are there. It removes the sense of uncertainty that God might have up the street and round the corner. God says, I have people who I want to belong to my family. And he makes it so definite in the way he speaks. I have many people in this city. Paul, you've just got to go and find them. And you see, this tells us something about evangelism, God's purpose. Evangelism is not finding a newer method or a better method. It's not just getting into people's culture or politely making the gospel acceptable. Evangelism is proclaiming the truth. It's not finding new methods, it's finding the people who God has already chosen to belong to his family. Evangelism is finding those who God is working in, finding those in whose hearts he's drawing to Jesus. What a great incentive for the gospel. Now, I know that this is a, a considered as rather Calvinistic idea. I don't think Paul had ever met Calvin, so maybe it's the other way around. Um, but uh, what Paul uh, gives to, to us here is, is not the suggestion that because God has chosen who he's going to save, it means we do nothing. This spurred Paul to do more. You know, C.H. Spurgeon he said when he stood before the thousands of people who came to hear him, he was praying and saying, who will you save today? He didn't say, will you save someone today? Because on the basis of a verse like this, he's saying, who is God working in? Who does God want to belong to his family? Wouldn't that change the way we approach our sharing of the gospel? Who is God going to save? Well, that's a, it's a subtle change, but it's quite important, the difference. And that's because God's purpose is to rescue sinners, bring them into his family so they can belong to him. And maybe today you're one of those people. You already belong to his family, or perhaps you're someone who has yet to open your heart to Jesus. But what God said to Paul, he's saying here, there are people who belong, who he wants to belong, who are not yet here. And Paul, you've got to go and find them. That's what he did. He goes out and he goes finding them. It's not a deterrent to evangelism when you believe that God saves lost people. Uh, it's God's job to save sinners. It's our job to find them, to share with them, to point them to Jesus. And so Paul got busy and tried to win souls for Jesus. And he carried on there for, for um, a year and a half consolidating the work. Um, there was work to do. God has a purpose for you as a fellowship and he has a purpose for you in your own Christian life. But here are three things we all need, don't we? The presence of God, the protection of his work and his purpose 
to bring people into his family. Uh, I once heard, um, uh, this summer I heard a, a preacher, a lovely uh, chap called Jonathan Lamb. And uh, uh, actually when he speaks, if you ever heard him, he, he sounds a bit like a lamb, not because he bleats, but he's so gentle and uh, warm in the way in which he speaks. And um, uh, he's an older chap now, I wouldn't dare say how old he was, maybe 70, 80, I don't know. And he said to me, uh, he said to us, God has put me on earth to complete a certain number of things. And I'm so far behind, I'm never going to die. <laughs> I thought, what a very e excellent way to think about God's work. And so the Lord has a message for us here, doesn't he? He says, don't be afraid. Don't look at the trouble, look at me. I love you, I've got a purpose for you. So keep serving, keep caring, keep speaking in my name. If you do nothing, it will just imprison your fears. It will keep them in your life. But if you believe I'm with you and that I'll give you the protection you need, believe that your life will bear fruit, then I promise you will see it. Going back to ancient Greece, there's a story about someone called Leonides, the noble hero of the Spartans. And uh, he defended the Greek from the Persians and there was this battle thousands of invaders and so on and one of his men said to him general when the Persians shoot their arrows there are so many they darken the sky and apparently Leonides replied and said then we will just fight in the shade and, and Paul just carried on serving the Lord. Whatever problems were there, encouraged by this vision, this promise of God led him to do something, to keep going, to keep speaking, to keep serving, because uh, the Lord had promised that he has got people he wants to rescue. And as Luke tells us this story, he gives us a picture of God being faithful. And... Uh, at the end of this passage, it's while Gallio was the proconsul that Paul was brought before the court. And if you visit ancient Corinth, you can see this beamer, this raised platform in the middle of the agora, the market. You've got shops down one side, shops down the other, and the ruins of a, an old temple to Zeus or something. And there in the middle is this beamer, this platform that... Um, uh, the proconsul would sit at and there would be seats around it and Paul was dragged before this and uh, Gallio is an example of God keeping his promise. Because before Paul can even speak, Gallio says, I'm not interested. Now the significance of this is that the official state, the governors, the rulers, the authorities were basically saying, You've got a free hand to talk about Jesus. If it had gone the other way and Paul had been prosecuted, it could have hindered the spread of the gospel considerably. But what the state does here is it does two things which are, uh, demonstrate the faithfulness of God. Gallio apparently was a lovely chap. Um, again, another mild, gentle uh, person. Um, let me just read what uh, some of the early writers write about him. Not in the Bible. These are historians. It says, even those who love my brother Gallio to the utmost of their power don't love him enough because he was such a nice person. No one was ever as charming to one person as Gallio is to all. So here we have a kind, charming, appealing governor of this region 
And he can see right through the Jews' stirrings. And uh, uh, Gallio demonstrates two really important things that Baptists especially have thought important historically. The first, when it comes to church and state relations. The first is that Paul is not accused of doing anything wrong when he preaches the gospel. And the state should allow the freedom to share the gospel. That's one of the first things that uh, is recognised. But the second is this. He says that it's not his job to make decisions about what people believe. That's what Gallio, 2,000 years ago as a Roman governor, says in his area, is that it's not the government's job to tell people what to believe. Now, that doesn't happen across the Roman Empire, and increasingly today, we see places where the government still is wanting to tell us what we should believe about things. When they do that, there'll be people, Christians, that have to stand up and say, you have gone beyond your remit. You've infringe the government's rights, which are not to impinge on conscience. We should be free to make our own decisions about faith and so on. And uh, here we have this precedent set in scripture. But what it's showing is that God's promise is kept. God had promised Paul his, his presence and his protection and his purpose. And so here God has overseen the events and uh, as a result of it, Gallio then shows his bad side as he pays no attention to the beating up of the person who's caused the trouble in the first place, Sosthenes um, or, and the Jews uh, and so on in the synagogue. But something else happens as a result of that. You see, these Jews have overstepped the mark in their persecution. Uh, Sosthenes is now the newly elected ruler of the synagogue because what happened, Crispus who was the synagogue ruler before, he's just become a Christian with all his household, so he's been turfed out, and they've got this brand new leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes. He's a good chap, they say, he's very nice, he'll help us, you know, perhaps he'll do something to stop the spread of this Christian stuff. And um, Sosthenes, at the end of it, he's unsuccessful in his bid to get Paul put in prison, and so he's turned against, he gets beaten up, and in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Paul, an apostle of Jesus through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Did they go too far? Often when persecutors go too far, the people they persecute end up turning. Somewhere after all of this, Sosthenes has joined the church too and become a follower of Jesus. There's that last bit. God had a purpose. Who is one of the people who God had in that city? It was Sosthenes. He wanted Sosthenes. And Sosthenes at the moment is the forefront of being against Paul. And we're not told his story. But within weeks, months, years, he has become a follower of Jesus too. So God's promise is kept. Here's this lovely picture. As Paul is in the midst of trouble, God is there with his presence, with his protection and his purpose. And this story is here to encourage us. We won't face the same problems. We're not going to be brought before the Bema seat in uh, ancient Corinth, but we may face challenges, mightn't we? So because God is with us, because he's got a purpose, and because he's promised his protection, will we live for him? Will we speak up? Day by day. Well, I pray that God will bless his word to us this evening.
And I hope it will encourage you in your service for the Lord to serve him together. And I also pray that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, would you give your heart to him today? Why go to all this trouble otherwise? We don't need social clubs in Wales. We need churches that are alive with enthusiasm for Jesus to share him with the needy world. Uh, will you join that? Be a part of something that will last forever, make a difference forever. That's what Paul said, and he wouldn't keep quiet about it. Uh, but I ought to be quiet now as our time has gone. So um, should we just pray together for a moment?